I really view the psychological sciences as another set of tools in our belt for understanding different aspects of the world, including our experience, why we behave the way we do, uh, that are partial, they're not complete, they're not in competition that way, but they help fill in the picture that we might be getting from our biblical theology. I'm Justin Barrett. I am a professor of psychology and the chief project developer for Fuller Seminary's Office for Science, Theology, and Religion Initiatives. Welcome to Language of God. I'm your host, Jim Stump. For the next several episodes, we're going to be lingering at the intersection of theology and psychology. Psychology is a broad discipline which is centered around the human mind, cognition, and behavior. And for much of its history, as we'll hear in this episode, it has been a field of study that has existed mostly separate from theology and religion, and at times even been hostile toward Christianity. We'll explore a little bit of why that is. Part of it has to do with the fact that psychologists have attempted to explain things like why people believe in God, what happens in the brain and the body during spiritual experiences, or what benefits religion might have to an individual or to society. And for some, these explanations can make religion feel like it's no longer meaningful or true. In these few episodes, we'll try to counteract that impression. And we'll go further than that as we look for the many places where the psychological sciences can provide a practical benefit to theology, in helping pastors to better care for congregations, helping each of us to be be better disciples, understanding how habits are formed and how relationships succeed, and even looking at the role of forgiveness. In this first episode of this series, we talk to Justin Barrett, an experimental psychologist. Experimental psychology is a branch of psychology that runs controlled experiments to try to find connections between the human mind and the way we act. And much of Justin's work has looked specifically at the psychology of religion. In his book, Why Would Anyone Believe in God?, he puts forth a case that religious belief is a natural tendency for humans because of the way our minds are built, but he doesn't think that takes away from its legitimacy. More recently, Justin has been involved in a new project called Theopsych, where theologians and psychologists come together to learn and think and talk with each other for the benefit of both disciplines. In full disclosure, this series is made possible in part by the Theopsych program, and I was a participant in the first cohort in the summer of 2019. We sat down with Justin at Fuller Seminary at that first session of Theopsych, with theologians and psychologists mingling just outside the studio. Let's get to the conversation. So you are an experimental psychologist, is that fair to say? Sure, that's that's a good label, yeah. Do you, uh, let's uh, dig back into your memories and see what we can stir up here. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing when you realized that that was a thing? An experimental psychologist is actually an occupation that you could pursue, and what was it that led you to actually pursue it? You know, this is one of those things where uh, I have to blame the sort of liberal arts curriculum of the college I went to. So uh, I went to Calvin College as an undergraduate, and I was a biology major. That's what I declared going in, interested in pre-med and pre-missions. 
but I was forced to take either psychology or sociology as a distribution requirement, you know, one of those core requirements just to be real well-rounded. And in that first introduction to psychology class, I was confronted with the idea of psychology as a science. I had no idea it existed before. I'd always been a lover of the study of the natural world in formal and informal ways. I thought I was a sciencey kind of guy, but I didn't know anything about psychology till that class. And it really captivated my imagination. Um, in part because of the same reasons I was previously really excited about biology. Biology is, you know, the study of living things and how cool are living things and how much do they show us the sort of marvelous uh, invention and power of the creator. But then here are the human minds, even that much more complicated, the crowning glory of creation. I'm think thinking, wow, that's really cool and really complicated. And uh, it's a new science. So it felt like all of the question, really exciting questions are still barely, you know, being addressed and there's plenty of room to play. So you're an experimental psychologist. You're also a Christian. Um, this dialogue between science and religion that's been uh, going on for a generation or two now uh, really rose to prominence primarily by considering physics and then moved to biology. Psychology has been a fairly latecomer to this in a more formal sense. Do you have any inclination why that is? Well, psychology as a discipline... Uh, has a couple of interesting features. One of those is it's one of the more secular of the disciplines in terms of how people would identify. You've got the, among the highest percentage of non-believers, at least in the United States. Why is that, by the way? You know, uh, I, I can't be absolutely certain. Um, part of it is the historical origins, I think. You know, some of your biggest, uh, most impressive sort of figures in the early days of uh, psychology as a discipline where folks like Sigmund Freud, a little later B.F. Skinner, who were very clearly not religious. And I think they attracted a certain kind of following of, of people that were particularly interested in demystifying what it is to be a human. And part of that demystification too is dis demystifying everything. And so we sometimes hear that word reductionism. And I think that wasn't a bad word for a lot of folks going into psychology. There was something appealing about making sense of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors um, in a way that doesn't, well, that doesn't make use of ideas of human will or uh, souls or even minds to a certain extent. It actually, uh, I mean, this isn't the case for Freud, but certainly for Skinner and Skinner's type of approach to uh, human psychology, it had no space even for human minds, thoughts, uh, let alone motivations, desires, and aims. Everything was to be reduced to just sort of humans as a kind of machine almost or of just uh, a different kind of animal. So I think that's part of it is there's this heritage of nothing buttery mm. in that's sort of baked into at least the scientific side of psychology. Um, and so a lot of people who have gone into it have been attracted to that. But, you know, this is, I mean, I'm sort of slightly informed speculation on that front. Mm -hmm. I haven't done the psychology of psychologists, really. <laughs> <laughs> so in those other areas where there's a dialogue between science and religion, uh, there are often... Uh, the dialogue is around ideas or discoveries in those science that seem to stand in some tension with, say, the physics or the biology that we see at least reflected among the human authors of Scripture. 
So is this a similar feature in psychology that you're suggesting that perhaps uh, psychological discoveries about humans and how they work might stand in some tension with these traditional religious ways of understanding people? I think that there is that potential in psychology. Uh, there aren't quite the same uh, real prominent flashpoint findings or theories in quite the same way. But definitely, if you want to look for things that just fit, fit a little uncomfortably with the Christian worldview, they're, they're there aplenty in certain prominent, at least historical theories in psychology. Give us some examples of those. Well, uh, you know, referring back to uh, Sigmund Freud, right? I mean, his idea that we are animals driven by all of these unconscious processes over which we have very little control. Well, that doesn't sit terribly comfortably with the idea of us being willful beings who in some ways are choosing to behave this way or that and are culpable then for those choices, which has been, of course, a more common Christian idea. So that would be one example. Or uh, really, uh, B.F. Skinner's idea that we are nothing but a product of the conditioning of our environment. Uh, so uh, or, order the environment in a certain kind of way, and you get certain types of people, and there's not really a whole lot you can do about it because there really isn't much of a you, after all, when it comes right down to it. Well, that f fits uncomfortably with at least the way that Christians have typically looked at ourselves. But I think rather than pointing to very specific theories or findings, I think it's more that sort of um, the idea that psychology has often viewed as a competitor for Christian views of, of, of human nature, what a human is, and how to solve human problems. Um, because psychology is saying, well, look, we don't need those pastor types to counsel us. We can come up with mental health professionals who are informed by psychological science. Um, we don't need ideas like uh, redemption or sanctification. Uh, what we need are therapies or interventions. And because psychology, unlike, say, um, uh, physics or cosmology, geology, or even sort of biology writ large, psychology is about humans. It's about human thought. It's about human behavior. In some ways, it's about human values and what's the purpose of humans and what makes for a good life, right? Uh, psychologists think they have something to directly contribute to those kinds of ideas. Well, then they in some ways really are trafficking on exactly the same kind of issues that the church has been concerned with for a couple thousand years, right? I mean, or religions more broadly have been concerned with forever. So it's not oh, and there's this interesting on, thing on the side that might have some claims that contradict scriptural kinds of commitments or scripturally informed commitments. It's like, no, we're actually doing the same thing, and by gum, we can do it better than you can, hmm. you old Bible-believing people. I mean, there can be that kind of an image of uh, psychology as a practice or psychological science as a, as a uh, mode of inquiry. So you're trying to rehabilitate that image in some sense, in the church, that psychology really does have something to offer that's not in competition with, that, that might actually help instead to bolster our understanding uh, of the world and ourselves, of humans, through a Christian worldview. Yeah, that's right. I, 
I really view the psychological sciences as um, another set of tools in our belt for understanding different aspects of the world, including our experience, why we behave the way we do, uh, that are partial. They're not complete. They're not in competition that way, but they help fill in the picture that we might be getting from our biblical theology. Like any other tool, they have to be used for the right thing. They have to be cared for in the right way. And think of it as sort of uh, being good stewards of the science or science stewardship is a, is a term that I like to use to think about what our relationship should be toward these sciences. But yeah, we shouldn't be surprised that, for instance, if you want to talk about forgiveness, our theology can tell us how important it is for us to forgive, but it's relatively silent about, say, practical steps and what those look like if you're developing a forgiveness intervention or what the stages of forgiveness are. But work by people like Ev Worthington, scientific work and clinical sort of practical work have helped flesh those out. Um, that's useful. Or you might think of us, um, while there may be a theology of love, there'll be a psychology of love and the different kinds of loves and how they're enacted in human behavior. Um, and, and so it would be a shame, I think, for the church to ignore these available tools or to say, hey, we don't need them. We'll, we'll get on just fine. Well, in some cases, we will get on just fine. But in other cases, why not use these really good tools that are available to us? So that's kind of what I'm hoping for. So in the same way that there are perhaps some views of psychology and psychologists and uh, perhaps ways that they have not lived up to the ideal from our from whatever our perspective is in this regard, um, it's probably fair to say that psychologists might look at theologians with also uh, some hints of these are some ways that you could maybe improve here too. And so again, not every question, but some of these questions where the empirical side of psychological science can come to bear and to help inform um, theology or other ways that theology might so you give the example of forgiveness here are there other areas like in the conceptual sphere of theology that would be uh, helped by considering what psychological science can tell us about those particular things yeah well there's this whole area of uh, theology that's called theological anthropology and it really is the uh, the theological consideration of what humans are what our nature is um and issues in that space. And, well, by gum, that's kind of what psychologists do, too, in their own limited kind of way, is explore what is human nature, at least with regard to how we typically or often behave under certain circumstances. And so within that umbrella, you might think, well, uh, psychologists have been studying things like... Um, well, how does language develop and what does language do to our thought? I know a problem you're interested in. Or um, we might think, uh, well, there's a lot of psychological work about our reasoning abilities and the biases, predilections, heuristics that we use to solve problems typically in our thought and reasoning. And those might give us new insights into not just how to think well, but when thinking goes wrong. Um, so you might think, well, psychology has something to contribute even to the study of fallenness or sin, our sin nature. You might think it has tools for exploring that. And I think those are some areas where uh, theology could really benefit. 
let alone the practical areas of theology of how do we communicate certain theological truths effectively given the kind of minds that humans have. That seems particularly important for, say, pastors for whom communication is sort of their uh, you know, daily gig of, of what they're doing. Psychology can provide some insights for, for how to do that better. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of our educational programs in schools today and our communication techniques, they're actually areas of applied psychology. There's educational psychology, there's communication and persuasion psychology. And uh, on top of that, there's a psychology of religion and cognitive science of religion that's exploring uh, how people often think about religious topics, uh, theological ideas, and having a better understanding of the psychology there may then be useful to those who want to communicate and persuade effectively to realize, okay, uh, here's why I'm bumping up against a wall, it seems like. Uh, Why is it, one of my favorite examples is, why is it that uh, we often in the Christian church, uh, especially evangelical church, hear so many sermons about grace? Grace, 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 grace. Well, part of that is because it's really important to us. But I think, you know, in their more candid moments, most pastors will admit to, and it's because people are just not getting it. (laughs) Well, why aren't they getting it? What makes that concept so hard for us to really absorb and let it change our lives from the inside out? Uh, I think there's reason to think that it runs counter to kind of our nature in some ways. You might say our fallen nature, but that's okay. But in, in the way that we think about what it means to be uh, responsible, what it means to engage in a relationship with someone. Uh, We often, research seems to suggest, we like to say things like that, research seems to suggest um, that we find it very intuitive to think in terms of uh, give and take, tit for tat, what I give you, what you give me back, reciprocation. is sort of one of these general human relational principles. And then comes in this idea of grace that God's kind of going to transcend those rules. He's not just going to engage in reciprocation. He's going to say, you don't owe me nothing um, other than gratitude, perhaps. And that sits funny with uh, a social animal that sort of is kind of built up its societies on the idea of reciprocation and that you get what's due to you. And uh, so that may rub us the wrong way. And so it, it requires a lot more attention. Um, That would just be one example. And I think there are lots of these little islands like that of even uh, church experience and pastoral experience that maybe a psychological approach could at least put things into new relief and give us new insights on what's effective, what isn't, and maybe uh, ways to invent new techniques uh, to uh, serve those roles effectively. So your own research has been uh, largely in this field of cognitive science of religion. Can you give us the uh, sort of elevator pitch of what this field of study is and why it uh, ought to be important for people of faith to understand and consider? Yeah, cognitive science of religion is uh, an interdisciplinary area. It uh, draws a lot on the psychological sciences, but on other neighboring sciences as well to try to account for why it is that across human cultures, groups of people throughout history, we seem to see recurring patterns of expression, cultural expression you might call religious. Why is it we see God concepts uh, come up again and again and again? Why do we see ritualized behaviors? What about ideas in afterlives? 
um, something like a soul. Why are these ideas, why do they show up across cultures in very similar ways? What's the psychology behind that such that we humans are especially receptive to certain forms of thought and uh, cultural expression and not others? That's kind of what the era of cognitive science of religion is about. It was um, kind of uh, invented by primarily by some religious studies scholars who really wanted to do more than document interesting differences of religions across cultures, but get to the point of being able to better explain why it is they saw the similarities and differences that they did, and not just rely on appealing to uh, historical peculiarities or just, oh, well, it just happens that, and then just tell a story about it, it just happens that. But, well, wait a minute, you can't just say it happens that over and over again, we see these similar patterns under similar conditions. What's accounting for that? So cognitive science of religion grew up trying to look at those kinds of questions among others. And so there's this, trying to explain religious phenomena by appeal to psychological mechanisms. That's kind of its, its thing. Is one of the reactions to that, particularly from people of faith, that, whoa, hold on here, you're just giving now a, a naturalistic explanation for why I'm religious and therefore my religion isn't really true? That is a common response. There, there can be some defensiveness there and saying, well, if it looks like you're giving a naturalistic explanation for this, then is, is that all there is to it? Um, and I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding there. Just because we have some kind of a psychological or naturalistic explanation for some kind of phenomena doesn't mean it isn't real, meaningful, valuable, or whatever. Um, psychologists would be quick to point out, if they're being honest, I think, that, look, we're in the business of explaining things like why it is we think our mothers love us. And there's a perfectly good sort of psychological naturalistic explanation for that. But that doesn't mean our mothers don't love us. That would be the wrong conclusion to draw. What we're identifying is what are the psychological processes by which we, if you want to put it this way, detect accurately that our mothers love us. In a similar way, we might say that what cognitive scientists of religion are doing are identifying the psychological dynamics by which we make ourselves available to God's revelation. Now, I'm adding a theological gloss on the, those findings. But I think it's consistent with the scientific approach then to draw out these theological implications. Did you want to push me on that anymore? <laughs> and to be clear, I'm not pushing you to, to say I somehow object to this. I'm trying to uh, channel some Absolutely. of the, the kinds right. of concerns oh, that people might have with this. So uh, other kind of similar examples are if we have some understanding, say, of how human beings evolved, does that mean God had nothing to do with it? It, it, it sounds like you're doing something here where you're saying there could be one kind of explanation uh, that draws on these psychological principles, perhaps throw in some evolutionary adaptiveness even, for why we tend to believe in God. And that in and of itself doesn't mean, and therefore that's the only reason that we believe in God, but that it might be a pathway toward actually being able to detect something that is there. So is there is there some analogy in this even with the development of other 
sense organs we have. I mean, could we give a natural history of the eyes for why uh, we can detect electromagnetic radiation that would be similar? Is that, or is this uh, not a fair analogy? Are you, I guess what I'm asking, so, so sometimes, particularly within Reformed uh, communities, we talk about the sensus divinitatis. Is that a sense in the same sense that we have these other sense organs and you're giving a kind of natural history of that as a sense organ? I, I think that's a fair comparison. Uh, Kelly James Clark and I have written about this a little bit, uh, trying to be a little provocative. But the idea is that um, there are theological reasons. You know, John Calvin developed many of these inspired by Augustine and St. Paul and others uh, about the this notion that we've got some kind of uh, vague, fuzzy uh, sense of the divine that is just sort of part of human nature. It's kind of baked in, part of maybe God's general revelation to us, making us receptive to the idea that there's, there's something, well, some divinity out there that we detect in some imperfect way just by virtue of being the kind of animals that we are. Well, that's a theological concept, but it's a theological concept that has sort of empirical legs. We should see evidence for it. And if you, even Calvin sort of has articulated the kind of evidence we might look for, including cross-cultural recurrence of certain kinds of religious ideas. Um, he was actually explicit about that. So while cognitive science of religion wasn't out to investigate the sensus divinitatis, what it ended up stumbling upon was – um, parallel evidence that you could put together to say, yeah, it kind of looks like by virtue of the kind of animals we are growing up, developing in the sorts of ordinary human environments we find ourselves, it is very common at least to have a certain natural receptivity to the idea of there being something like at least one, but maybe many gods out there. So that humans aren't the only thing, that there is meaning and purpose in the world around us. It's not merely the physical world. Uh, maybe that there's something about us that transcends just our bodies, too. Those seem to be very natural ideas for humans to think. And cognitive science of religion has been, uh, quite independently of the theology, developing uh, theories upon, based upon certain kinds of evidence we're getting through experiments, cross-cultural studies, and the like, um, that seem to be pointing in the direction. Do we want, if, if you would like to call that a census divinitatis, I think that's all right. So I, I do think there's an analogy there. Hi, Language of God listeners. We wanted to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about the Biologos Resource Centers found at our website, biologos.org. You'll find articles, videos, and other resources curated for pastors, educators, youth ministry, campus ministry, and small groups. Help bring the science and faith conversation to the places that are important to you. Just click the resources tab at the top of the page. Now, back to the conversation. In that analogy with the senses and even, can we say, a properly functioning sensus divinitatis will result in people believing in God, is the objection from the other side then, okay, you're giving me this uh, natural history of how I came to be this way. I don't happen to believe in God. Am I somehow disabled then? Am I not functioning properly if I don't believe in God? 
Yeah. Well, from a theological perspective, one might be bold enough to say, yeah, there's something not right there. Um, that's not what God intended. God did not intend for us to not come to knowledge of him. It depends on your theology. But I take your point. Um, you might think, well, are you sort of almost pathologizing uh, atheism at that point? Right. Which would be ironic, given right. that so much of psychology has tried to pathologize <laughs> right. theism. I do think it's not a level playing field. That's one of the things that's helpful about the sciences. It does help adjudicate amongst, well, who's putting their thumb on the scale. And I do think that the science at this point suggests that at least under normal human conditions, the conceptual path of least resistance is something, you know, religious looking. But the science does not go as far as to say that something like uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that Christians say became incarnate in Jesus Christ, is... uh, somehow preferred by our mechanisms, our psychological mechanisms. We don't have evidence for that. Um, How would you account for atheists? Well, there's actually ongoing research on that question. Um, Some of my colleagues who work in this field, in fact, most of my colleagues who work in this field are atheists. I happen to know. Um, A few of them who are atheists happily bite the bullet on this. They say, yeah. Actually, atheism is uh, a little bit of an aberration. It is a conceptually more difficult path. But then they might congratulate themselves. They're not going to say, there's something wrong with me, therefore. No, they're going to say, yeah, I've overcome my natural propensities, just like somebody might overcome their natural propensities to be uh, violent. And they sort of have, have overcome that. Or their natural propensity towards alcoholism. And they're like, but I'm sober. Uh, I've, yeah, I've got these natural propensities to see purpose and design in the world around me, to think my life is having this greater meaning, but I've wised up. And we can build societies that help other people wise up on this front too. You still might say, look, uh, atheists are in a position that is in some ways less natural than an ordinary religious person. And uh, many of those of us who think of ourselves as evangelicals, we would hate to see our friends who are atheists stay in that condition because we think that, uh, you know, we've been gifted with a life that has greater meaning, purpose, richness because of our, well, because God has sort of grabbed a hold of us and we've received that gift from him of this abundant life. And we want to share that with other folks. So how would you bring that about? Does cognitive science of religion have insights on that front? I'm tempted uh, to speculate, and I am speculating here, that part of what might be offered from this approach is to say, well, if, if it is the case that uh, some kind of religious thought is the path of least resistance given our ordinary human nature living in ordinary human environments, then it's probably unusual cultural environments that make atheism more attractive. So we might be interested in how can our atheist friends be sort of returned to more natural kinds of social environments, that is, environments that maybe don't quite push against those natural inclinations so hard. That's sort of step one. And step two, then, that all of us need is to complete the picture. Well, we've got these conceptual, you might think of God-shaped conceptual gaps that need to be filled, but just which God is going to get put in there? Mm -hmm. Um, That's up to that cultural environment. That's that 
I think we'd say our special revelation has to complete that picture. And that's still sharing the sort of the good news of Jesus in these cases and saying that purpose tug you feel, that meaning in life you feel, that's coming from God. That that sort of conceptual, in this case, conceptual yearning, there may be passionate yearnings as well for the something beyond. Well, that's God has planted his seed in there. Um, let me introduce you to the the person who's filling that space in me. Mm. And you don't have the the sort of granularity in this cognitive science of religion of understanding belief in gods to get down to different kinds of conceptions of God, monotheism versus polytheism perhaps, or anything that's more specific in the religious realms of what has turned into various religious traditions? It, it is looking a little bit like um, that gods who are um, responsible for the order we see in the natural world around us may be a bit more natural than those that don't. Um, gods that at least are seen to act occasionally now and again, uh, a little bit uh, we're a little more receptive to those, I think, on a cultural level than we are gods that just have nothing to do with us. Gods that play some kind of morally regulatory role may actually be more adaptive. And so there may be uh, group level uh, evolutionary sort of dynamics that have seized upon them to make them more attractive. Talk about that a little bit. Well, some of the folks working in my uh, general area would say, all right. Uh, we've got these, uh, you might think of it as uh, conceptual engines that make the idea of invisible-minded agents with sort of special properties easy to think about, easy to talk about. We have a sort of basic re receptivity to them. But if some of them, one or more of them, gets talked about who also then are morally interested. Maybe they account for surprising cases of fortune and misfortune by saying, ah, that person was punished or that person was rewarded for their moral goods. Then those gods may play a regulatory function in that society. And so there's some thoughtful speculation um, and research that has followed up on the speculations exploring, could it be that the idea of morally interested, powerful gods actually helped our species get past really small bands of people into bigger organized uh, communities? You might think over at least, you know, I don't know, we've got communities of thousands of individuals that somehow get along pretty well. And gods may have played some kind of role in that. In which case, those societies that have those gods outcompete those that don't have the gods. And that gene pool also then has some maybe selective advantages over the others. So you get this sort of gene culture co-evolution, they say, um, that has made maybe even morally interested gods all the more attractive to us over time. So, for instance, the way I've heard, if, see if this is correct, the way I've heard this uh, described a little bit in a smaller group. So, there's some psychological research that suggests the number of individuals that we can maintain relationships with, right? Right. So, 
once we get above that, or while we're still below that number in our hunter-gatherer groups, there's some sort of peer pressure going on that helps to regulate behavior. So I'm not going to steal your club because you know my mom's aunt and or, you know whoever whoever it would be within that group. There'd be these relationships that I have to maintain and to keep intact. But once we get above group size of that magic number. People become more anonymous to us. I may not have that same sort of pressure for not harming or stealing that person's goods. But if I'm inclined to believe in an invisible, powerful person that will punish me if I do that, that's the adaptive story that is being told about this? Yeah, that's right. Um, when groups are small enough, our kin bonds or our anticipation of bumping into each other in the future and so having good reciprocal kinds of relationships may be enough to regulate us, get us to cooperate to a fair extent. Once we start getting big enough, uh, then we've got some regulatory problems. We can cheat each other and get away with it. And you might think, well, all we need to do is punish each other. Well, we could, you know, we could set up little police states that punish people who break the rules, but that bears a cost. The community has a cost to bear on uh, tracking down and punishing the people who cheat. It'd be great to offload some of that cost onto the gods. And if the gods will do this work for us, that's a lot cheaper because the gods could be anywhere. They're going to be harder to cheat. I mean, it's going to be harder to evade their watchful gaze. And their punishments could be a lot more severe in some really interesting ways, right? It could be uh, sickness. It could be, and I don't just mean in the afterlife. I mean in this mm -hmm. life, uh, sickness, uh, bad hunts, uh, injury, all kinds of interesting things. Um, infertility could all be read as signs of the gods punishing. So for these kinds of reasons, it is thought that uh, it could be that gods play this really important role then, at least historically in societies. Could that be tested in contemporary societies, though, where belief in God is on the decline? Yeah, folks who are attracted to these kinds of accounts will often use experimental designs in which even in fairly secular societies, for instance, they will... Uh, prime people with the idea of a god. Priming there just means uh, we introduce some kind of a, a, well, we say a stimuli, but, you know, it could be words, it could be images, it could be all, you know, any number of things that remind people about god or some kind of gods and then look at their behavior in uh, different kinds of social engagement kinds of tasks, maybe that require trust or cooperation. Those kinds of experiments have been conducted. And while the results are a little irregular, there seems to be some evidence that if people are sort of reminded of God, even if they are atheists, they may be slightly more cooperative or slightly more generous. So that's one way that experimental psychologists might approach this. And perhaps video surveillance uh, is starting to take the place of this, where there well, is always somebody watching in, in China now, right? Well, that's right. Or uh, London is famous for this, right? And there's a camera everywhere, it seems like, in, in central London. And the thinking is that just the very presence, the, the thought that I may be watched helps people sort of rein in their uh, temptations to be naughty. So then the, the real question is, has that been part of the story of where um, God's belief in gods have come from? Maybe. Can the state and sort of uh, 
all of these video cameras and things take the place of the gods, well, that's a little different. That's sort of reducing the gods to this purely functional kind of, uh, and a single function Mm -hmm. that uh, at least the psychology of religion has consistently suggested, no, uh, being part of a religious community does a whole lot more for you than just make you behave a little better. Um, so let's, uh, cool our jets if we think that belief in God is merely a social technology. So we're sitting here in, uh, Pasadena, California at Fuller Seminary where belief in God is still normative, right? Uh, you're directing a new project called the Theopsych Project. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Yes, theopsych, bringing theology to mind. And there, what we're trying to suggest is it's bringing theology into into contact with the mind sciences. And this is a three-year program funded by the John Templeton Foundation. And our hope there is to identify areas of psychology that are useful to theologians in doing their theology. Uh, We don't want theologians to become psychologists. We want to introduce theologians to findings from and theories from psychological science that might be useful to them in doing their theology. We're uh, hearing from uh, psychologists who work in the area and having discussions about what are these findings from psychology, um, what can they contribute to various theological studies. So it's kind of fun. Um, it's an it's an experiment. <laughs> I was just going to ask that: Is there any uh, research on uh, what the effects of this might be on these theologians? Oh no! Well, there isn't that. But uh, this is the research. This project. is the research project. Yeah, we've seen uh, similar kinds of programs in other domain areas, like uh, uh, programs for theologians, for instance. Uh, for sorry, for philosophers uh, to be introduced to theological concepts, for instance, or. Uh, some time ago, it, when I was uh, based at University of Oxford, I ran a program introducing philosophers and theologians to cognitive science of religion. So we've done this kind of thing before, but this is this is new in trying to curate psychological science for theologians. Usually here at Fuller, we see uh, what we call integration going the other direction. Mm, I was going to ask that. Yeah, so uh, Fuller is an unusual kind of place in that we've got a school of psychology that offers a master's degree in marriage and family therapy and two doctorates in clinical psychology. Um, we've been at this for over 50 years now, but mostly we've been concerned with how can theology inform doing psychology? How can it motivate um, and maybe uh, sort of refresh uh, the psychology, especially as a helping um, uh, discipline? And we're kind of trying to get the integration direction arrow going the other direction. Gee, uh, how is it that psychology might be provide some useful resources for theologians. Not so that it will just go one way instead of the other, but so that we can start a feedback loop, Mm -hmm. right? Because we imagine that if theologians start engaging the psychological science, it's going to help their theology, but they're also going to come up with new questions or new insights that psychologists just haven't even started looking at. And so it could stimulate psychological research in, in turn. And together we can start maybe a virtuous cycle of theologians and psychologists really helping each other make progress on these topics that just matter to uh, us as a, as a church and uh, really do some good kingdom work here. So finally then, uh, 
What do you hope for the future in terms of this science-religion dialogue insofar as psychology is, in, is uh, involved in this? What, is it, what does it look like for psychology to be much more fully integrated into the life of the church and theologians? And I'll tell you, my big dream is that, um, like other scientists, so this is a dream not just for psychological scientists, but for all scientists, that... Um, that the church moves closer to position of recognizing that doing scientific inquiry really can be a God-ordained calling, and that those of us who are scientists really open ourselves up to the idea of that we can be a resource to our church communities. Um, we can uh, really contribute to not only just theological insight, but putting that those theological insights into practice in our local communities. And that then we are a resource in discipling the next generation of scientists. There's so many of, you know, big problems facing humanity, the world at large, that the sciences offer some really great tools for addressing if they are theologically informed. And so I really hope that we are moving towards a day in which uh, more and more Christians who are scientists are also biblically and theologically informed so that they can be resources for their church and for the world um, and recognize that that's their calling, that's their, that's their place. Good. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for having me. This episode is the first of a three-part series we're calling Theopsych. These episodes were made possible in part by the Theopsych Project, hosted by Fuller Seminary's Office of Science, Theology, and Religion. Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the John Templeton Foundation and more than 300 individuals who donated to our crowdfunding campaign. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hugerworth. That's me. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are produced out of the BioLogos offices in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos Forum. Find more episodes of Language of God on your favorite podcast app or at our website, biologos.org, where you will also find tons of great articles and resources on faith and science. Finally, if you're enjoying the show and want to help us out, leave a review on iTunes. We love hearing from you, and it helps other people find the show. Thanks! Stump is a superhero. He flies around town without any cape because he's that kind of a guy. We all right? Yep. Okay. Was that all being recorded? Yes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you may need that at some point. <laughs> we'll use that for something.